high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Friends, being your host is the best job in the world because I get to bring you the rock stars of medicine and drug treatment and prevention. And today, you're going to hear from another rock star that I'm excited for you to meet, Dr. Marta Sokoloska, who works at the FDA, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The FDA is a huge organization that regulates drug safety for the United States, but also sets standards for the entire world. One of the offices at the FDA is CEDAR, the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. This is where Dr. Marta Sokoloska works. CEDAR has been working on drug safety for over 100 years. It regulates over-the-counter prescription drugs, including biological therapeutics and generic drugs. And this work covers more than just medicines. It includes fluoride toothpaste, antiperspirants, dandruff shampoo, sunscreen, and other such drugs. The FDA in the medical world is known as publishing its boxed warnings. Opioids, for example, have boxed warnings for addiction and respiratory depression. And we will learn about boxed warnings today. The word box comes from the actual box with words in it in a document of a drug labeling. Every prescription has labeling from the FDA, and if there's a box on the top of the label, it means pay attention, there are warnings to know about. Today, we'll be talking about stimulant use disorder and how the FDA is involved. What is a stimulant? Well, there are legal and illegal stimulants. Illegal stimulants are commonly known as methamphetamine and cocaine, And legal stimulants come in a prescription form, such as Ritalin, Concentra, Adderall, Dexedrine, or Vivant. All these stimulants, both legal and illegal, can be abused and developed into a stimulant use disorder. What is a stimulant use disorder? It's a disorder when someone experiences clinically significant impairment caused by the recurrent use of the drug, including health problems, physical withdrawal, persistent or increasing use, and failure to meet major responsibilities at work, school, or home. According to the most recent National Survey on Drug Use and Health, an estimated 1.1 million people aged 12 or older, or 0.4% of the population, met criteria for a methamphetamine use disorder. For cocaine, the same survey showed that it occurred in less than 1 million people. Over half a million people, 560,000, suffer from stimulant use disorder caused by prescription stimulants such as Ritalin and Adderall. A use disorder is a DSM-5 clinical diagnosis. And with that brief introduction, let's hear the question of a day from one of my colleagues, Dr. Kara Bergamo, an emergency physician who heads our California Bridge Program, connecting emergency physicians to medication assistant treatment. Hi. First of all, thank you for your program, Dr. Lev. My name is Dr. Kara Bergamo, and I work as an emergency medicine physician at Scripps Mercy Hospital in San Diego. 
I am also our Medication Assisted Treatment Program Director. While we have many treatment options for patients with opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder, it seems that we have very little to offer in ways of treating stimulant use disorder, specifically methamphetamine use, which we are seeing a ton of in the ED. Do you have any suggestions for treating these patients, or do you know of any options that are coming down the pipeline for us to use? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bergamo, for your question. For every one patient in Southern California that we treat for an opiate use disorder in the emergency department, we discharge maybe 10 people who have methamphetamine use disorder. And it can be frustrating that we don't have as many tools for people addicted to methamphetamine as we have for people addicted to opioids. Recently, we had an email frenzy with doctors, nurses, and case management in our department. The frenzy was about what can we do for these patients? We have to have better ideas, better solutions, um, other drugs, medications, programs. People suggested to say, like, hey, why don't we start using dextromethorphine or Vivitrol or nicotine or other suggestions? And we just had to say, hey, time out. We need to really look at the science, what's available, what's not available, what's on the horizons. And I knew the perfect expert that I need to call to help answer this uh, frenzy and really get the facts on what's available, what's not, and what's on the horizon. And that is Dr. Marta Sokolowska. Dr. Sokolowska joined the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 2018 as Associate Director for Controlled Substances at the Center for Drug Development and Research. She provides strategic leadership in development and implementation of policies related to controlled substances, including advising in all matters related to domestic and international drug scheduling. She earned her degree in psychology from McMaster University in Canada, and her full bio is available on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Sokolowska, welcome to High Truths. Thank you very much, Dr. Lev, for introducing me uh, and for inviting me to this uh, very uh, important podcast regarding substance use disorder um, and specifically stimulants use disorder. Again, thank you very much for the invitation. And uh, just as a disclaimer, the opinions that I'll express on this uh, podcast and the information that I'll present are only my own, and they do not necessarily reflect the views and the policies of the FDA. That's right. So don't bitch at them. Uh, You could just bitch at us. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice opening statement. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you here, really, because first of all, I get to see you again. And when we used to meet periodically when I was at ONDCP, I think the first time I met you was at the IWIG. And WIG is not like something that you put on your head. Um, It's an interagency working group. And uh, we worked together um, on some projects and we met again at the Interagency Medical Leaders Council, where we got all the medical leaders, all the different federal agencies, and then with our Safe Prescribing Working Group uh, and with the National Academy of Medicine. And it was really nice to get to know you. And I always look to you in the room as someone, you know, who who had this background in addiction medicine um, and and leadership and experience. So having you back and seeing you now again is really is really nice. Um, I, you know, Dr. Berger was one of my emergency medicine colleagues. She has a very good uh, question. You could hear her frustration um, about the lack of options for patients with methamphetamine use disorder compared to the volume of patients um, that we have. So what are are there options for 
And I know that this is something that you really work on, on stimulant use disorder. What are options for, for patients? Thank you very much for the question. It is a very important one. And yes, we do recognize the lack of treatment options for stimulant use disorder, pharmacological options for stimulant use disorder. Um, as you pointed out, until now, there is no FDA approved treatment for neither cocaine or methamphetamine use disorder. Um, we are very concerned about it. And we really want to support the development in this space. That's why we even went, we organized a patient-focused drug development meeting, as well as we met with clinicians, trying to better understand what are the currently implemented treatment options for these patients. Um, and they, there's a broad spectrum of them, um, includes everything from, uh, uh, from matrix model, contingency management, trauma-involved uh, behavioral health care, and treatment for uh, other underlying health conditions. These are some of the treatments that are being currently implemented. Self-management, such as, you know, patients told us they uh, strategically drink coffee or participating in 12 steps programs, um, really implementing the role of peer relationships and support. Um, these are just some of the methodologies that are being currently implemented uh, to support the patients with stimulants use disorder. But everyone, whoever we talk to, always emphasizes the need that we really need to support and find um, alternative treatments um, that are evaluated and demonstrated to be effective for uh, stimulants use disorder pharmacological treatments. And I think our listeners may be inspired to hear, like I am, that when there is a medical problem, the FDA is not just going to the research bent or the big pharma. They're actually going out and talking to the community and the people on the ground. And you did this with opiates. And I think that that's what you're describing that you're doing with stimulants. You're reaching clinicians, you're reaching people who have a methamphetamine addiction uh, when you come up with solutions. And right. And you had a conference about that. Yes. Uh, so as you pointed out, um, as part of FDA regulatory responsibility, uh, we review applications from sponsors regarding different uh, pharmacological treatments within the Office of Drug. Um, however, in order for us to really understand uh, how to evaluate these treatments, how to make sure that our evaluations is consistent with patients' needs and with the clinicians' needs and the understanding of a disease process, it is really critical that we engage with patients, that we engage with a clinician, that we can define better um, the endpoints. Um, how, how do we define effective treatment? Um, it's really critical to have the integration and interactions with, with patients and hearing them and integrating their they perspective into our scientific viewpoints and our very rigorous scientific fr framework. So in October of last year, we had patients-focused drug development meeting, which was a really fantastic opportunity for half a day to have an open conversation, not only with uh, patients who are in recovery, but also with family members, um, members of patients' groups, harm reduction groups, and really to, to hear from them 
what are the trigger points for them? What are the areas that they feel FDA and FDA in collaboration with other agencies, just as you mentioned, including the WIG and um, uh, ONDCP working groups and other intra-agency collaborations, how we can really in collaborative format address the broad scope of uh, stimulant use disorder treatment, because that goes beyond only development of treatment. It's really addressing the patient as whole, because um, there are so many issues that we can address, starting from stigma, uh, going through access to medication. There, there are so many, so many levels that we can address this issue. So we are really very much in, excited and engaged in that spectrum. Um, and we are really look forward to, to really um, furthering this development. And you mentioned endpoint, and I don't know if our listeners know what that means. Um, and and can you tell us what an endpoint means and how an endpoint is different for someone who has an opiate use disorder versus someone who has a stimulant use disorder? So the way we defined endpoints is uh, how do we define what is the definition of the effective of a effectiveness of a treatment? We need to, in our regulatory programs, in our clinical studies, we need to be able to define what is the, the demonstration of the effectiveness of a treatment. Like a cure? Like meaning like this is, you've been cured. Well, it depends how you define it. Uh, yes, in ultimate world, um, you know, everyone would want to have the abstinence or the, the cure as, as the ultimate endpoint. However, um, depending on the disease, sometimes minimizing the harm is already a successful endpoint. With um, opiate use disorder, just recently in October of 2020, we have released a final guidance on demonstrating the effectiveness of, uh, of drugs for treatment for opiate use disorder. And it goes through a number of different types of endpoints that can be considered when you are as a sponsor um, trying to define and um, try to arrange and define clinical studies and the endpoint or the, the demonstration of the effectiveness. And there is a broad range that can be considered. So abstinence is definitely uh, one of them, uh, but there are others. So for instance, looking at adverse outcomes of opiate use disorder, reducing mortality, reducing the need for emergency room um, interactions and interventions, um, looking at uh, other components such as uh, um, infections uh, with hepatitis C, for instance. These are some of the adverse outcomes related endpoints. Another endpoint that could be considered is the change status, uh, change in the disease status using um, diagnostic criteria for obitus disorder. So with um, a statistical manual for of mental disorders or DSM-5, which is the newest edition, there are a number of criteria that have to be met for a person to be diagnosed with moderate or severe opioid disorder. So limiting number of the criteria that are being satisfied by the patients, potentially uh, moving the patient from the moderate to severe spectrum of opioid use disorder to mild uh, spectrum of uh, uh, opioid use disorder could be potentially an endpoint. Um, or change in drug use pattern. So if someone was using uh, opioid, for instance, on daily basis, if they change the use pattern and just use it once a week, that could be considered as a benefit. So there are a number of ways that are being defined in the guidance that can be considered. Obviously, you need to provide justification why specific endpoints you would see that is valid. Um, and this is, I think, a really great um, 
progress in our understanding and development of treatment for opioid use disorder. But your question was regarding stimulants use disorder. Yeah, and how, how is it that, how is it, that? Are those endpoints different for just because it's a different drug? Opioids so versus stimulants. Uh, so because opiates and stimulants are different and the patterns of use of opiates and stimulants are very different, um, these endpoints potentially could apply, but we have far less information regarding impact of stimulants uh, versus opiates and the, the pattern of use and how it would map out. So that's why we do all this extensive work with patients and with clinicians to trying to better understand, especially as the the patterns of use of stimulants are changing in recent days. Uh, we really want to make sure that we have a good grasp uh, and good understanding of a pattern of use so we can define what is a meaningful change in the disease status, change in pattern of use, or change in adverse outcomes. Yeah, and I think some other um, endpoints that you mentioned before is besides abstinence is craving and quality of life or getting off the streets and things like that. Absolutely. So these are the functionality outcomes, um, patients reported outcomes. And uh, there are special regulations within the FDA, how we can evaluate it. Obviously it has to, FDA has to stick to strict regulatory standards, um, but there are ways of uh, quantifying um, how these endpoints could be demonstrated or what would be considered as a meaningful change on these endpoints. And we are hoping to really move the science of uh, stimulants use disorder treatment uh, development forward and have it better defined. Interesting. I'm wondering, listening to you to talk about the different, um, you know, there's a gradation of what an endpoint can be from maybe a gold standard of abstinence and a cure versus, you know, not using as much um, and more of a harm reduction is when, when you publish the guidelines or is there, is it, does the public and clinicians know what, what those endpoints are? Um, like if you use drug uh, magic it will result in abstinence in you know 50% of the time, but it would have harm reduction in 80% of the time. So, so you could make a, a, a judgment on, on using that, that medication. So these endpoints that I have described, these are the endpoints that are being implemented in clinical studies, evaluating mm -hmm. impact of a given treatment, assuming that this drug would be effective in addressing or um, impacting the given endpoints. This information would be included in the drug labeling. So for clinicians, it would be clearly and identified in our FDA communication with physicians on what to expect based on clinical studies, what would be an impact of given medication. Mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting if um, our listeners may be interested in listening to episode number six with Robert, who describes his addiction to methamphetamine also some opiates, but mostly meth. And both those cravings stopped with Suboxone, which is for opiates, not for meth. But but his, he had an association in him for both the drugs and the Suboxone helped in, in his situation. So I, I found that, that interesting. Um, so we, I really like the fact that 
you're from FDA, your life um, bread and butter is working with drugs. But when I asked you, what can we do for methamphetamine use disorder? The first thing that you did is talk about things that are not related to drugs. There doesn't have to be a pill that's a cure for everything. So that, I think that that's, that's nice um, to hear from somebody whose job it is to, is to, you know, look and regulate drugs. Are there any options or studies on the horizons, uh, companies, pharmaceutical companies that are working on, I know that there's nothing approved yet, but are there some options that, uh, that are coming down the pike for FDA approval for stimulus disorder? So I'm not in position to discuss specific applications. However, uh, um, what I would say, <laughs> however, what I can point people to and, and the audience is to look at, um, for instance, clinicaltrials.gov. Um, they have, if you put in as disease state, cocaine use disorder or methamphetamine use disorder or similar use disorder, you will have a whole range of studies that have been conducted or they are currently in progress. Uh, looking at treatments for for these disorders. Can you say that and throughout the again, one more time? So our clinicaltrials.gov. That's the website that, by regulations, sponsors have to publish their studies. Mm -hmm. So you have an opportunity to see what is really being explored currently within U.S. Uh, and outside of U.S. in some situations. Um, for this specific disease state. And there is a broad range of, not only of, of uh, pharmacological treatments, but also devices. Um, very interesting um, area to, to consider. Um, just um, last year, um, there was an, a very interesting review paper published regarding overview of stimulant use disorder treatments that have been explored. And it's quite fascinating, the range of, uh, of treatments that have been co considered, especially for cocaine use disorder, everything from antidepressants, anticonvulsants, antipsychotics, dopamine, dopamine uh, agonists, um, medication for opioid use disorder, which would include suboxone, mm -hmm. uh, medication for other substances of abuse, uh, psychostimulants, um, including the amphetamine or methylphenidate, uh, as well as a uh, you know, range of other pharmacological uh, therapies. Uh, for methamphetamine use disorder, uh, for instance, naltrexone was being utilized as well. So there have been, throughout the years, they, there have been a number of different drugs or combination, drug combinations that have been studied. Again, none of these studies, um, even if they were positive, um, there was enough information uh, for FDA to evaluate these products and consider them as effective for stimulant use disorder. However, there's a lot of interest in this space and definitely there were a lot of studies concluded. Um, so the question is, you know, what can we do if there's anything that FDA can do to really help um, with that research to make sure that we can get to the, the holy grail of of uh, effective treatment, mm -hmm. demonstrated effective treatment for stimulant use disorder. So if we go to this uh, website, clinicaltrials.gov and look under methamphetamine um, treatment uh, and we see like new studies or medicines, how long does that take, um, if at all, for, for FDA to give approval? Is that a matter of years or months? Well, it all depends. 
it, it depends what is the status of a clinical trial. So um, drug development program can take 10 years or more, um, depending again on um, if it's uh, um, if if it's a new molecular entity or if it's just at a purpose or if it's at a purpose drugs we've already established safety profile, depending how much data we already have regarding the given medication. So if you have uh, a program that is in phase two, phase three of development, we have four phases of drug development. Uh, phases one to phase three are. Um, pre-marketing human uh, administration of a drug, human use of a drug in pre-marketing setting. Um, if the, the drug is being at the latter edge of the uh, uh, latter spectrum uh, of the evaluation, uh, obviously it will be shorter, um, but overall uh, drug development programs are lengthy. And uh, 10 years, and you said unfortunately, that's a long time. The failure rate is very high. Right. Yes, Which depending is, on the molecule, but yes, it's it's a long time. Long time. So there, there is one study that was published this year. I kind of want to see what you think of it. It was uh, uh, January of, of this year, 2021, New England Journal of Medicine. They looked at 403 patients who were given naltrexone and bupropion for 12 weeks, and they showed 11.4% improvement um, for methamphetamine use disorder compared to a placebo group. Um, what do you think of that? Is that enough to say, hey, let's all start doing this? Well, again, this is just one of the studies that shows signal. However, this is this study has not been reviewed through um, with uh, has not been reviewed by the FDA division that is responsible for um, for stimulus substance use disorder treatment evaluation. Um, and typically there are a lot of additional questions that have to be asked. So I would, this is a very important scientific discovery. However, there is a big gap between scientific discovery and FDA approved treatment. So it's a definitely move in the right direction, but this is not FDA approval. You know, and I think that that's what I like about the FDA. It's not, we're not going to take 400 people and approve this for the whole population uh, of the United States, of uh, really the world, because FDA really stands, makes a, um, a trend for the entire, for the entire world. Um, and, and if you did say, oh yeah, we should all do that, I'd say, wait a second, have we not learned our mistakes with the opioid epidemic, where we said opiates should be used for everybody based on a small number of studies. And we paid that price dearly um, over you know, the next 20 years. So I'd say this is a very small study and 11.4% um, improvement sounds horrible, actually, right? I mean, you have to compare that to contingency management or um, non-medication options that give you much better results. So I, I did see the study and people were saying, hey, why don't we start doing this? And it's good to hear from you that, that just because there's one study with 11.4% does not give the green light for everybody to start doing this. Although I bet you there may be some people who, who, do, who do that, right? And that would be considered I, I using it off-label. Absolutely, because none of these medications are approved for treatment of stimulants use disorder. 
I, I strongly encourage research in stimulants use disorder. That's how we get eventually to the to the holy grail of having a treatment approved. Uh, it's because there are uh, researchers who find uh, promising substances that they want to uh, test in uh, and uh, raise the level of scientific evidence that we have regarding these treatments. But as I pointed out uh, earlier, within FDA, we have a very specific rigorous uh, regulatory plan on how you evaluate these treatments. And there's a reason why um, it takes 10 years to do so. Uh, and why we have this, uh, this, this rigorous plan is because we want to make sure that not only that this medication is truly effective, and it's meaningfully effective, but it's also that it's safe. Right. So when we're talking about meth, um, stimulant use disorder, we think of, I think mostly of methamphetamine because I'm practicing in, in San Diego, but it also includes um, cocaine. Um, and it also includes abuse of prescriptions, um, things that are FDA approved. There are, are several um, stimulants that are FDA approved for, for use for ADD, ADHD, um, and those can be abused. Do you, you know, is that something that you look into? So psychostimulants, the misuse of psychostimulants, psychostimulants-related deaths are definitely um, on uh, our forefront of our uh, mind and thinking these days because of uh, the recognized contribution to the overall uh, drug overdose problems. Um, and within this, the spectrum of psychostimulants, um, there are prescription medications as well as you mentioned, predominantly for ADHD. Um, so we def and these are schedule two products. So with recognized abuse potential. Uh, so we definitely uh, look into these products to make sure that uh, we are adequately profiling the benefits as well as risks associated to prescription stimulants. So what do we know? Um, even though Prescriptions for opiates, prescription opiates have been going down in the recent years. Prescriptions for prescription stimulants are going up. Mm -hmm. With that, we also know that when we looked at pattern of non-medical use of prescription stimulants, we have a very uh, distinct patterns of use, different than what we've seen with, with prescription pain, pain relievers. So uh, with prescription opiate medication, uh, we've seen relatively flat level of uh, non-medical use across the different age groups. With prescription stimulants, what we find very interesting is that it, there is this peak of non-medical use um, within early adulthood, uh, somewhere between 18 and 29 with the uh, early 20s, um, really, popping up as the key population that is reporting to non-medically use prescription stimulants. Um, but the literature is uh, really diverse regarding uh, quantifying uh, the, the contribution and the impact of this non-medical use. The question is, is the non-medical use of prescription stimulants associated with negative consequences? And if so, what are the consequences and how can we address it? So what do we know regarding uh, prescription uh, non-medical use of stimulants? Um, we know that, uh, as I mentioned, the age group, it's in 
young adults predominantly. Um, college population is predominantly being identified as one that is misusing these products. We know that these medications um, very frequently diverted. That's an area of our concern. Um, it's frequently taken from family and friends. Um, also, um, there are reports of fraudulent, fraudulent uh, prescriptions, um, but also a large portion of, uh, of a medication is coming from legitimate prescription, their own prescriptions of a, of a persons uh, who are taking it. They are just not taken as prescribed by the doctor. You know, so it's interesting that you 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 say that about um, that peak age of the 18 to 29. We had an interesting um, meeting, our, uh, uh, our prescription drug abuse task force in San Diego. San Diego has many different colleges. And at one of the meetings, we invited campus police to present at our meeting. And they told us that the library during finals week is like a, a drugstore um, where, where people uh, are, you know, selling and trading and they're not allowed to, to come on campus or, or do anything about that. They just see that. And it's only if there's drug deals kind of near or off the campus, you know, some guy in a car with the whole, you know, trunk full of drugs, they can, they can do something about that. But what happens in the library, they, they're not allowed to go in or do anything about. So it, it really troubled me that the next generation of doctors and lawyers are and professionals are going to, you know, get ahead or think they're getting ahead by, um, by using drugs. So you nailed it. Um, this is exactly what we are concerned about, because what we know or what we've learned from the literature and the studies that have been published to date is that a lot of uh, uh, persons, especially college students, um, when asked why do they use uh, prescription stimulants non-medically? So I'm talking about people who do not have ADHD uh, diagnosis, or even if they have diagnosis, they use a the medication not as prescribed by the doctor. Um, 50 to 80% of them, and again, it depends on, on the literature sources, claim that they use the medication to facilitate their academic achievement or to for a work motivation, productivity, increase, increase productivity. And, and does that uh, work? Purposes. Do you get better grades if you use uh, some Adderall or Vyvanse before your exam? If you have ADHD and you take the medication for, your, for the disorder, yes, it does. However, if you are not a patient with ADHD or you take the medication not through the paradigm that has been designed by your doctor, actually, there is no evidence that it facilitates your uh, academic achievements. And if anything, it potentially could decrease it. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity for communication um, to really um, make the population understand uh, impact of, uh, of this non-medical use of prescription stimulants, that it, even though the motivations might be to increase academic performance, it doesn't always translate to that. And is it addicting? Are there, is there people who like, okay, I'm using it to help better grades in school because it's testful and it's finals week, but then, you know, maybe I'll use it again to improve my performance at work. So this is the key question that with research we are trying to understand right now. Um, what is the trajectory of use of prescription stimulants? We know that prescription stimulants are being used non-medically, as I mentioned earlier. The question is, what happens to these students? Um, 
so there is some literature already coming up in that space. And again, this is all uh, somewhat preliminary and further investigation is required, but it appears that for, um, for patients or for people who take prescription stimulants non-medically, they are more likely to translate into polysubstance use in, in later um, life. So if, um, if they use prescription stimulants, let's say in high school or in college, they are more likely to use other sub substances such as opiates, cocaine, um, or uh, alcohol or marijuana um, in later on in their life. So there seems to be a correlation. This is something that we find very troubling and definitely need to ex explore it further. Well, I think if you have that, that that would be an important prevention message that, you know, on, you know, college campuses, like using stimulants before finals week will not improve your GPA, um, will not make you more academically successful. And um, may result in future polysubstance use um, and problems. So I don't know if we can, if we have the data to say that, but I think that that would be an important uh, to have little posters in the library and, and college campuses before final weeks and let people, uh, kids know that. Um, so one of the things we, we, we worked on, and I'm proud of our work that we did um, in our IWIG uh, about safe prescribing, um, was, um, you know, our work on opioids and benzodiazepines and uh, concurrent um, uh, central nervous system depressant medications. I think that's the way we need to go as far as decreasing, decreasing um, deaths from medications. Um, but with that, FDA has been very strong on, on providing warnings and people know that what's a black box warning. So maybe can you explain to us what's a black box warning and what are some, what are the drug safety communications? Um, and you've had several of them that the FDA has done. An imp important component of FDA work is not only to, to review and approve a medication, but to communicate adequately regarding the benefits as well as risks of a medication to make sure that the benefits of the, risk, of the medication outweigh the risk. However, when the risks are important to identify and stress, they are presented in what we call box warning, which means that on top of prescribing information for a given medication, there is a highlighted or boxed information regarding the um, data that we feel that it's critically important for the doctors to understand when they are prescribing the medication. This boxed warning, um, it, it's exactly what you need uh, just alluded to. And it's frequently one of the methods how we communicate um, with, with the doctors um, regarding these risks or how we emphasize these risks. When during the life cycle management of, uh, of a drug, we evaluate um, the risks and benefits and signals for, especially for any risks and adverse events that are occurring or any new clinical data that uh, has been um, submitted to us or has been published, we monitor it very closely. And if it turns out that um, there are some new risks that have been identified, 
we make sure to communicate it with the public um, using their drug safety communication. And very frequently, if the signals are um, of additional importance, we also revise the product labels and that's where we put the, um, the additional safety information in the box warning if it's warranted. You call it a box because it's actually in a box in the label warning, right? And that's where the box <laughs> came from, right? Yes, yes. And it's, it's, and, a, it's mm-hmm. and is a black box worse than any other color box? Is that like really worse? Like, whoa, whoa, be careful. Don't ever do this. So there's only one box warning. We don't have different color box warning it happens to be black and white labels of so a box is black <laughs> um but it is uh, it's it's a box warning and you can see it on uh for instance on prescription stimulants medication or prescription opioid medication and and some others as well um essentially it's on on the top on, on the first page of uh, of the product information of the so- drug labeling information Got it. I didn't realize that there was, I always called it black box. So now I know it's just a block box. Um, so there's several ones. I think most people are familiar with the uh, box warning for opiates, right? That's something that uh, FDA published years ago. Yes. Yeah, so actually box warning and a number of different medications. Again, when we feel that the um, the benefits outweigh the risks, but the risk we want to make sure that they are emphasized and they are taken into consideration. We really, so that's the situation when we put these, uh, these risks on a, uh, in the box warning. Um, and there are a number of products who have it. So yeah, opiates are one of them, uh, stimulants, um, as well as, uh, for instance, benzodiazepines. And they are not always related only to um, misuse or abuse of medication. Um, if there are any other warnings, uh, they would also be put into these box warnings. But I think the one that's really important when you said benzodiazepine, you have one of opioids plus benzodiazepine, right? You have a warning about the two together. Yes. Um, so we have uh, in 2016, we uh, provided drug safety communication regarding the risks of co-use of benzodiazepines and opioids, and that risk was included in the box warning. Uh, and more recently, actually, um, just last year, uh, we have strengthened the, the warning and provided additional information regarding the risks of polysubstance use of benzodiazepine with other substances and the risk of withdrawal. And that's also included in the box warning. Mm -hmm. And then you have one on gabapentin. We see a lot of people who, you know, the the research that I've did about death diaries, people who die from medications, gabapentin, which is not a scheduled drug, I think it should be, but um, there's a lot of association with gabapentin and, um, and deaths related to drugs. So as I mentioned earlier, um, during drug life cycle, we continue evaluating the risks uh, and benefits of the medication, particularly the signals of of risks. Um, And that's exactly what's the case with gabapentin and and pregabalin, where there is some uh, publication and literature being published and our internal analysis of data that have been submitted by sponsors uh, have indicated that there is potential um, serious uh, respiratory problems with uh, with these two drugs, especially when they are being co-used with opiates. Um, hence, we required new warnings to be added uh, regarding uh, risk of re- respiratory depression. 
uh, as well as uh, we re required from the drug manufacturers to conduct clinical trials to further evaluate the abuse potential, uh, particularly um, when these products are being administered, administered in combination with opioids. Yes. And then you even did one on Benadryl, something that's over the counter, but really showed up on the death diary research. And then you published a, a warning on that as well. Yes. So uh, just in September of last year, uh, we released drug safety communication warning um, regarding um, use of higher doses than recommended of uh, Benadryl. Um, it was related with actually with social media. Um, we received reports of what's called Benadryl Challenge, where um, videos posted, particularly on TikTok, um, really encouraged uh, the users to uh, take high doses of, uh, of Benadryl um, oh, no. for um, uh, hallucination-like um, effects. Uh, obviously, it's, uh, it's very troubling. Uh, it's not in line how we... How we um, support the administration of this medication. Um, this is not consistent with the uh, uh, OTC information um, that is included. Um, so we wanted to warn people against uh, engaging uh, in such challenge and make both uh, consumers as well as parents and caregivers being aware about this challenge because unfortunately, um, sometimes it's uh, it's difficult to keep track of your teenage kids and uh, they are the ones who've been mostly um, uh, impacted um, or yeah. engaged in this challenge. So I think the, the lesson here for safe prescribing, both for clinicians and for patients is, you know, be weary of the drug combinations. You know, you could be prescribing a drug that's the right dose and right indication, but if you're getting another medicine, Benadryl over the counter, gabapentin from another doctor, these combinations can be deadly and there needs to be coordination between physicians. And if as a patient to take responsibility too, to to be aware and, and and ask about drug interactions, especially if you're taking getting them from different for different doctors. So I really thank um, FDA for for those drug safety communications and and being you know going to even listening to some TikTok videos and being aware of that and 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 making warnings about that. I think that that's that's great. Again, showing how you're going um, to the front lines to get to get information. And, and that actually has to do with the last thing that I thought that we can talk about is prevention. I mean, you're, you know, the TikTok uh, Benadryl job, uh, challenge was an example of prevention work that FDA is engaged in. And so um, I think our listeners will be interested in what are some other things that FDA is doing in terms of prevention. Prevention is extremely important. Uh, so we are working with a number of uh, uh, intra-agency groups to, to make sure that the, the risks of the medications are being uh, well communicated. Um, you know, it's much easier to prevent development of substance use disorder than to treat it. So, you know, having uh, a lot of communication regarding the risks is really key. And that's what we are very much focusing on, uh, making sure that the medication are being disposed appropriately when they are not used. So they are not within the, the reach of those people who um, 
intentionally or unintentionally might might take it um, without um, medical orders uh, is really important. So we've been uh, really engaged in the uh, disposing uh, in, uh, uh, in, we've been very much uh, engaged in communicating about the need for disposal of the medication. We've been working uh, again with uh, across the different agencies uh, supporting DEA, for instance, and they take back dice. Um, again, from substance abuse this perspective, this is this is really key. Safe disposal, right? Uh, we can get your medicine safely, but also throw them out safely and, and working on that. That's great. Um, Dr. Marta Sokoloska, do you have advice for my emergency physician colleague, Dr. Kara Bergamo, who who called in with this question and and her um frustration uh, um, about uh, solutions for people who use methamphetamines. So uh, first of all, thank you very much for voicing the question and to bring to our awareness the need for for development of treatments of for for substance use disorder. Um, we encourage using uh, not only pharmacological pharmacological but non-pharmacological, treatments um, and we really looking forward to to the next steps and trying to figure out how we can work together to address this issue yeah and and um, my my advice um, you know to dr. Bergamo is actually a thank you thank you to dr. Bergamo and my emergency physician partners and all the staff in the emergency department um, we're a real um, professional team. Uh, when I was at the White House, we talked about our mission of saving lives, but the staff in the emergency department are really the heroes on the gram who saves lives every day and even risk their own life to doing that. The work is difficult, exhausting, it could be stressful, but we have to take a pause and realize that it's rewarding and making a difference. Um, we have patients in the emergency department who have COVID, but way more patients who are there with addiction and mental health conditions, um, really, which is the bread and butter of an inner city emergency department. So thank you, Dr. Bergamo, for caring for emergency patients and your passion and commitment for helping people who suffer from addiction. And uh, uh, Marta, uh, thank you uh, for your service to FDA. You know, government service is a service. Um, you are an advocate for addiction medicine. You and your colleagues set the standard for drug safety and innovation. Um, you working um, COVID. Uh, I know that uh, the FDA is working overtime to make sure PPE and testing and treatment and, and immunizations are safe. And I know that you're forging ahead with work on drugs and addiction. I'm very proud of you and, and your work. So thank you. And also, what a thrill to have you here on High Truths. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you regarding substance use disorder and FDA work and trying to address it. I think the only way we can address substance use disorder is if we are working together uh, with patients, with clinicians, uh, and with communicators just like you. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful 
please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.